What a joy it is to sing God's praises. It's one thing to read and to hear, but it is a joy to also sing the word to God. As we continue this morning in our teaching series, Redemption, that's coming in the book of Exodus, I remind you just briefly from last week that as we began this journey, that our God has a plan. He's not a God that's haphazard, who does things randomly. He is a God of order, and he indeed has a plan. He's working everything that happens in the world and including in your life to culminate and to conclude his plan one day when his son comes back in full glory and his redeemed will be resurrected from their graves and those that are alive will be met up with him in heaven and we will be with him for eternity and when our enemy Satan and all of his evil minions and death itself and sin and disease will all be defeated and long gone and we wait for that day with anticipation. That's what we live for, is to see the glory of God revealed in our lives as we expect and as we long for His returning to consummate His plan. But indeed, He has one. And God's plan, quite simply, is to display His glory. Everything that God does is to reveal that. And the primary way in which God reveals His glory is in creating a people that will belong to Him forever. That's what God is about. He is about creating a people and then redeeming them so that we can enjoy him for eternity. And we began this journey looking at Exodus chapter 1 and chapter 2, and we learned last week, or for those of us maybe in church for a long time, we reviewed what we read and we saw how the Israelites, which were just a small band of 70 people in a clan that God had called out, the descendants of Abraham, who were given God's promises that through the lineage of Abraham, all the peoples of the world would be blessed, that they would have an inheritance, an eternal rest, a good land that would belong to God's people forever, where we can belong to God. And this was promised through Abraham. And the initial recipients of this, this promise were 70 of them that were living in in Egypt, because, of course, the famine that would threaten to kill them, and so they relocated to Egypt. We read how 400 years later, they became a mighty nation, no longer a small clan, now a multitude, and the Egyptians enslaved them. And so what happens, as, as we began reading last week in Exodus 1 and 2, we see how the people of God don't seem, it doesn't appear as though they belong to God. Remember, God has created a people to belong to him and that will enjoy him forever. And as you read Exodus 1 and 2, they don't belong to God. It doesn't seem that way. They belong to an evil king. They belong to Egypt. And remember, in the Egyptian world, the king was considered a god. He was a deity. And so in a very real way, the Israelites felt and it appeared as though they didn't belong to the one true God. They belonged to a pagan god. They belonged to Egypt. And they sure weren't enjoying God. They were languishing, suffering in slavery. And so it would appear as though God's purposes are being thwarted. It would appear as though, oh no, God's plan is not being accomplished. God's people are in the wrong land, under the wrong leadership, and aren't enjoying their God. And so is God in heaven frustrated? Is God saying, oh no, my plan's not working out. Time for plan B. No. 
not at all. God has a plan. And everything that is happening is being worked out according to his sovereign and infinite wisdom. And so what we see, the theme for the entire book of Exodus, is that God has a plan to save a people for his own glory. So his plan specifically, as you, as you read it in Exodus, is to save, to redeem, to liberate a people for his own glory. So let's continue reading about God's story of redemption in Exodus 3 and 4. And we're, we're reading a good portion again today because, remember, anything that I say is just commentary or explanation or illustration of God's word. What I say doesn't really matter. What I think doesn't really matter. If I'm being honest, what you think doesn't matter that much either. What matters is what God's word says and how we live our lives according to what he says. And so let's begin by reading his word in Exodus chapter 3, and we'll go halfway through chapter 4. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, as he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was, not, was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place in which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. And when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And say this, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, 
the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. A land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness. That we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor, and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, and so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they would not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming to meet you. And when he sees you, he'll be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your staff and your hands the staff with which you shall do the signs. What joy it is to read God's word, to read and to hear the very words that bring life For it is through the word of God that he created and through the eternal word of the Son that he is redeeming 
And so to read and to hear God's word is indeed a joy. Let me give the main idea from this text. It's lengthy. I know it's a long story, but here's the main idea of this, and it's that God's plan of redemption is accomplished through a human representative. And so God's plan of redemption is accomplished through a human representative. So in God's infinite wisdom, he has chosen to accomplish his plan through a mediator, through humans, through specifically one primary mediator, but many in the past that have pointed to the final one of Jesus Christ. So that's what we're seeing here in the gospel as we see it in Exodus. You see, as you read this more closely, as we'll look at it here this morning, it's very important that we understand what this and what this is not. You see, Moses is just like you and me, flawed, with problems, with baggage, with hang-ups, with issues. He had more issues than a newsstand, all right? This guy had a lot of issues. He had a lot of problems, a lot of history, things that didn't always go well in his life, much like that person that stares back at you in the mirror. That's flawed. That was Moses. You see, here's what happens to us, and this is so big for people that are this tall, that are raised in church, is a lot of times they go to class, which is a good thing, but they hear these stories about heroes like Joshua and like David and like Moses, and we think of them as heroes, and we think that they're these shining examples of spirituality and godliness, and you should be like Moses, and you should be like David. Really? What we just read? Is that a shining example of godliness that we should be imitating? No! Every single example in the Old Testament, these men and women were flawed, just like you and me. There is nothing special about Moses. There is nothing good about Moses. He's a human. The thing that makes Moses special is the fact that God chose him and wanted to use him to represent the glorious God to go accomplish God's purposes. And so it's not about the strength or perfection of Moses. It's about the strength and perfection of God. And so the significance of Moses and other Old Testament characters is that they played a role in God's story, just like we get to play a role. Theirs was unique. Their unique role was by revealing and the foreshadowing of the nature and the work of Jesus Christ. They were pointing to Jesus. So these men, what they did, what Moses was about, was being used by God to reveal the very gospel. So everything in the book of Exodus, as we're going to keep seeing in the next few weeks, is it is pointing to salvation in Christ alone. That's what it's about. His work on the cross to redeem a people that are enslaved to sin. And so the book of Exodus is not just a story. It is a story, but it's more. It's not just a story of God saving some people a long time ago, you know, those people that were like in Egypt or something, and then God like saved them, some random story. That's not what it is. It is the story of God's salvation. That's what this is. The the book of Exodus points to our redemption in Christ. It sets a pattern, a pattern that exists to this day. 
There are people in this room, and I would hope everyone, but I know better, not everyone in this room. But there are people in this room that there was a point in your life when you realized that you were actually enslaved to sin. You realize that you try to be a good person. You realize that you try to make sense of your life and have a sense of meaning and purpose on your own, and you realize that as much as you try to do the right thing, you kept failing, and you felt this thing in your heart called conviction, and you knew that there was a problem with you and that your heart was broken, and you couldn't be the person that you wanted to be. And you realize that the reason is because you are broken and you were spiritually enslaved to sin. And then someone told you about Jesus. Someone told you, hey, you know, there's a man named Jesus and he lived a life of perfection and he has come to set captives free, as you read earlier in the worship gathering. And he can liberate you and give you new life and change your heart. And you believe. And the same message you had heard before, for some reason on this day made sense to you, and you repented, and you believed in Christ, and you felt the weight of sin come off of your shoulders, and he's beginning to change you more day by day. You see, redemption is something that the pattern was set with the Exodus, and we see it still to this day, people being liberated from their sin because of a redeemer, Moses, pointing to Christ a spiritual liberation, much like what you saw here, a physical one. It's a pattern. points to Christ. Which is why in Jude chapter 5, the New Testament, Jude says in verse 5, it's a short book, it's only one chapter. In verse 5, he says that Jesus, this is specific, he doesn't say Moses. Jude says, Jesus saved a people out of the land of Egypt. And so the Bible is revealing to us that it was Christ who was revealing who was liberating people from slavery. And as you read in Isaiah, the prophecy fulfilled by Christ that he sets captives free. And so Moses, serving as a redeemer, he's a little r, a lowercase r redeemer, points to the ultimate and final capital R, the ultimate redeemer, the redeemer, Jesus of Nazareth. And so what we see here is God accomplishing redemption through a savior, through Moses, pointing to Christ. And so let's look at this because it's so easy to come to church and hear something that's theoretical or to hear something that, oh, okay, well, that was good information. That was good to know. Now let's go get some lunch. That isn't the point. The point is not to come and hear some good information or hear about a story that happened a long time ago. This is meant to transform our hearts. And so let's seek to understand this and apply it for our hearts to be transformed. And I have three thoughts I want to share with you this morning, and it's specifically about how we can be transformed by these truths, the significance of God accomplishing redemption through a human representative, of course, through Christ. Three thoughts of how this matters, the significance. The first one is that God overcomes your weaknesses. So the first thought, the first truth from this text is that God overcomes your weaknesses. Jesus was fully human. He defeated sin, Satan, and death itself, overcame the grave. And he invites us to be part of his redemptive plan. So he called Moses to represent him. What was Moses doing when the story begins? Minding his own business. He was watching not even his sheep, his father-in-law's sheep. And he was just doing his job. He was just going to work, doing his thing, minding his business, and then what happens? 
God shows up. But see, here's the key. God didn't come to Moses. God brought Moses to him. He was led there. And then God was there, and Moses saw, and he went to get a closer look. And so that's what God does, is he brings his people, he draws us to himself. And is it possible that on this Friday morning you are, you are sensing God calling you, leading you to himself? If so, I would urge you not to fight, but to follow and to take a closer look as Moses did. You see, God is so good to us that he saves us from living life on our own agenda. Moses was doing that, living his life, minding his own business, doing his own thing. Many of us have lived like that on our agenda, doing our thing. We have a plan. We know where we're going. We have it all figured out. So we think. And all of a sudden, God shows up and says, no, I have a different idea, a different vision for your life, and I want to save you from the smallness of the life that you had planned for yourself. In Moses' case, just watching sheep. Because we can live life according to our thoughts, our agendas, our own pleasures, and God said, I have something so much bigger and grander for you if you will come and follow me. Our lives are not meant to be insignificant. When we're living for ourselves, they tend to be. When we're living for Christ, they're not. We can play a role in his redemptive plan. And so how did God call Moses to be part of his redemptive purposes? Well, he saw this burning bush, but it wasn't being consumed. So, of course, you go and get a close look. God says, Moses, Moses. He's, he's getting his attention. And he says, you're standing on holy ground. Holy refers to separated or to be set apart. So God was saying, I am not like you. I am not human. I am other than. I am separated. I am perfectly holy. He's saying, I, there's a distinction. There's a separation between who God is and who humans are. And it's in the presence of a holy God that we realize that we're sinners. And that is good. Because too many people walk through life blindly living for their own thoughts, their own agenda, minding their own business, and don't realize that they're in sin. But when we come face to face with the one and only living true God, we are exposed for who we are, which is sinners. And what was Moses' response? He hid his face. He was afraid. Natural response. But see, here's the thing about that. You have to understand, God made every human being with a very deep desire to experience something glorious, something bigger and more beautiful and beyond ourselves. This transcendence that we all desire, we all want something bigger than ourselves. And if you don't think so, why do you think people watch sports? I mean, seriously. I like to watch American football, which is, for me it's a bad year because my team is doing terrible, I haven't won a game yet. And yet, I, I keep watching. It's like, what's wrong with me? They, they keep getting killed, and I keep going back online and watching it on you know, online streaming. And, and you have people that will get in debt, and they'll spend way too much money to go to this championship game. And then they'll be standing there in the, in the stands with, I don't know, 70,000 other people watching very healthy men run around and hit each other or chase a ball. And you think, what are they doing? Why are these grown men that, you know, are professionals and successful, 
Why are they so mesmerized by watching other men hit each other and chase a ball? Why? It's like it's not even logical. And yet, it happens. You know why? It's not about the ball. It's about something glorious and bigger than themselves, being part of something big, being part of something significant in their eyes. And then they say things like, this is our year. We're going to win. And the guy is sitting on a couch. He hasn't played at all. And somehow he feels like this is his year. Like he's accomplished something by watching on TV. Why? Glory. He wants to be part of something glorious. He wants to say the team that I've cheered on since I was a little kid is going to be the champion. And champions that are victorious, that overcome, are glorious. And I want to taste. I just want my life that can seem some days monotonous and insignificant. I want to feel something bigger beyond myself. And I want to feel the ecstasy of my team winning and experiencing a little bit of glory in my life. And it's the same thing with a lot of you moms. Let's talk about guys with sports too long. A lot of you moms, your whole world is wrapped up with your children. And you define who you are by your children, how well they're doing. And if, and if they can't write their S's the right way, you're freaking out. Oh, no! And, and we try to find significance and value and meaning something bigger than ourselves, and things that, quite honestly, are not eternal. They're not. You were not made for your children. You were made for God. Your children is one way. Your husband, your wife, is one way that you can live for Christ. You don't live for them. You live for Christ, to worship Him. And as you care for them, it's an expression of that. It's a way to show your devotion to Christ. And by the way, with We're talking about things that are good. Sports is not evil, and and family is not evil. But you know what? We also can do this with evil things. Like if I give you an example, pornography. Why do guys, well, girls too, because they read stuff they shouldn't be reading. That's just as evil as it is for the guys watching, by the way. I'll say that here as a side note. Women that are reading material that causes lustful thoughts is no different from men that are watching images that cause lustful thoughts. It's just as evil. But why would a man spend hours watching naked women on a screen? Well, because God made men and women, but made humans to yearn for glory, to yearn for beauty. And so this man who is hooked on pornography is wanting beauty in his life. And he wants to gaze upon something beautiful and find significance and comfort by delighting in something that is beautiful. But the problem is that he was not created to be worshiping the female body. He was created to worship God. And women are beautiful because they're made in God's image. That is what makes you women beautiful. That God loves you. And he made you in his image. And you're beautiful. But when a man takes a created and he worships it, it's idolatry. 
But the desire to be drawn to beauty, the desire to be drawn to something glorious, to be drawn to victory, to be drawn to relationship. Why? Because God wants us to find all of that in Him. Be captivated by His beauty, to love Him, to desire Him, to be obsessed with Him. That's the goal. And Moses is getting a glimpse of the glory of God, but as a fallen human, you can't see God in his full glory or will die. He says that later in the book in Exodus 33. But he's getting a glimpse of God through this gloriously burning hot fire. God was magnificently showing who he is, his fire, and and we should have fire in our hearts, so we should burn hot for God as worshipers. But see, he overcomes our fallenness. He overcomes our sin. God overcomes our weaknesses. Because Jesus, as fully human, died on the cross for you to give you freedom from your sin. Are you going to be perfect? No. I'm not talking about holy perfection. But we are talking about a holy direction here. And he gives us that ability because Jesus died for you in your place on the cross was resurrected and offers us his Holy Spirit where he will overcome our weaknesses. God knows what you're going through, and he does care, and he made a way, a solution through Christ crucified. So the first significance here that we're seeing is that Moses was weak, and yet God had a plan to use him. He would overcome Moses' weakness because he's pointing to Christ. Second significant thought, second truth here, is that God gives your life value. So we see here, first, God overcomes your weaknesses, and secondly, God gives your life value. See, God tells Moses, go and do this in verse 10. You go and liberate my people that are in slavery. God had a plan to display his glory by saving a people, and who was a human agent to accomplish it? Who was representative? Well, Moses, of course, pointing to Christ. But five times in these two chapters, five times Moses says, no, no, I'm not doing that. No, you know, I would do that if I wanted to. But I don't, so I'm not going to do that. The first objection in verse, third, um, verse 11, rather, chapter 3, Moses says, who am I? Who am I to go do this? And what does God tell him? I am with you. Second objection, verse 13, I don't even know your name. I don't even know you. And God says, I am who I am. God is who he is. He is eternal. He is wise. He is glorious. There's nothing to compare him to. God reveals his personal name here as well because God revealed four Hebrew letters. They're just consonants, Y-H-W-H, or you can say Yahweh. This is his personal name. In your Bibles, you'll notice that when you see the word Lord, that is all capitals and it's italicized. And you'll notice that several times. Like, for example, in verse all over, like verse 18, it says it there. In verse 15, it says it there. And then, you know, several verses. And so when you see the word Lord in all caps italicized, that is Yahweh. That is the personal name. When you see the word God, that's Elohim, which is the general name, God. But then when you see Lord, that means Yahweh, personal, knowable, loving, merciful, gracious God. So he says, I am personal. So he is committing himself 
person to his people. Third objection, he says, well, how people believe me. No one's going to believe me, God. Come on, are you serious? And God says, look to my signs. And he gives him three. He changes a staff into a serpent. Well, why a serpent? Because the Egyptians saw serpents as divine. If you've noticed, the the pharaohs, the kings, on, on their headpiece always had a serpent. Why? Because it was a sign of power, and it was for them, it was the God. And so God is saying, I have power over the Egyptian false gods. The Egyptians think the serpent is a god? No, I am more powerful. I created serpents, and my son will crush the head of a serpent. Why do you think these evil Egyptian pagans that were enslaving God's people were worshiping a serpent? Who was behind Egypt? enslaving God's people, the serpents of old, that the final redeemer will crush one day. So God says, I have power, and he even gives them two more supernatural ones of his leprous hand turning whole again and turning water into blood. Fourth objection, he says, well, I don't speak very well. I'm not really a preacher. You know, that's not really what I do. I'm not a very good preacher. And God says, I made your mouth. And so now, this is getting, it's kind of comical now. Fifth time, fifth objection, Moses, he's out. He's got nothing. He's got no more excuses. At every turn, he makes an excuse, and God points to who he is. Moses focuses on where he's weak, and God says, this is who I am. And then finally, he says, I don't want to do it. All right, fine. you're, You're trying to argue why I can I don't want to. He says, please send someone else. I don't want to obey you. I don't want to go accomplish your plan. It's scary, and I can't do it. I'm just Moses. No. God doesn't roll like that. God doesn't like that. He says he got angry. He's fed up with Moses. And he says, I am with you. I will teach you. I am with you. Have my presence. It's not about your strength, Moses. It's about my strength, and I'm going to use you. But remember something. Forty years earlier, Moses had already tried to liberate Israel. How did that work out for him? He's like, God, I've been there. I tried. I even killed an Egyptian. And now I'm in exile watching sheep. It's not even mine. I don't even have to tell the business. It's my father, it's my wife's father's family business. My life is terrible. I used to be a prince and now I'm washed up. I'm useless. I've tried to do this before and it didn't work. God, what makes you think that I can do anything for you? I'm worthless. I'm useless. The thing is that Moses, was trying to define who he was according to his own abilities. Here's the thing. You can't give your life value. This is important. You can't give your life value. can't. Your life is valuable because God has made you valuable. See, God loves you. And he has a plan to use you like he loved Moses and he wanted to use Moses. You see, Moses was defining who he was. So Moses' identity, 
that he's showing, revealing here, was wrapped up in who he was and what he could do in his past, in his experiences, in his failures, in his struggles, in, in his hang-ups, in his inadequacies. And he was saying, God, I have all of these problems. This is who I am. I am Moses. I am flawed. I am weak. I'm a failure. I can't do this. I'm just me. And God, at every single objection, says, I am I am, I am, I am, and I am going to use you because the great I am, Jesus Messiah, has come. And that's why in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, before Moses, I am. Jesus is God, and Jesus is a human being, not was, is. And he has plans to accomplish redemption, and he uses human beings that are flawed and broken and bicker and have problems and, and hang-ups, and he uses us for his glory. We don't deserve it. Moses didn't earn it or deserve it, and yet God has a plan for his life to display the beauty of Christ that he is pointing to here. This truth should change our lives. You ask yourself, who am I? You look in the mirror, and, and, you, and you ask the person in the mirror, who am I? And it's so easy to say things like, I'm a failure. Or say things like, I'm a bad mother. Or I'm a too busy. Or I'm a lazy father. Or I'm depressed. Or I'm a loser. Or, or I'm an addict. Or what, however else we want to define who we are. Do not define yourself by your struggles. Do not define yourself by your temptations. That's not who you are. You define yourself based upon who God is. At every one of Moses' complaints based upon who he was, God points to who he is, the glorious God. And so he is speaking such truth to us here that we must not miss this. Define who you are in light of Christ. Who are you? You are among the redeemed. You belong to God. You are loved and adopted, forgiven, justified, being sanctified. You have an eternal blessed hope waiting for you. The creator of the universe sees you and loves you and delights in you and has a plan to use you for his glory. He does. Define who you are. If you are someone that struggles with depression, do not say, I am depressed. You preach the gospel to yourself. You say, I am a believer who has been sanctified, who has been sealed by the Holy Spirit, and I am a follower of Jesus who struggles with depression. World of difference with those two. World of difference. You define who you are, and then you say, yes, I have struggles. You give those to God. And he gives your life Value. Stop trying to find value on your own. The key here is God's presence. He was in the presence of God. And we need that every single day. Because his presence is all you need for everlasting joy. Third thought as we wrap up. Third, the significance of this for us today is God sees and he knows. God sees and he knows. We just read that he says that he sees their sufferings. He says, I have heard and I have a plans to liberate them from their anguish, from their slavery. 
when you suffer, God is near. He knows what you're going through. Jesus is all God and all human. As a human, he experienced the pain that you're going through. He understands rejection. He understands the problems. He understands your disappointments. He does, and he cares. And he has a plan to use you, even when you're struggling. He has a plan to use that to show his glory. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote an amazing set of books called Chronicles of Narnia. The, the first book in the series is called The Magician's Nephew. And in this book, which is just a remarkable book, C.S. Lewis captures this truth really well. Because, of course, you have the main character as Aslan, the great lion, who is the Jesus, the Christ figure in, in this series. And, and you have a young boy named Diggory. Now, Diggory, his soul is in anguish because this little boy's mother is dying. And he is face-to-face with the great Aslan, again, the Jesus figure. And you can just hear the pain of Diggory saying, But please, please, won't you? Can't you please give me something that will cure my mother? Now, up until then, he had been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. But now, in his despair, he looked up at his face. And what he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the yellowish-brown face was bent down near his own face. And wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. There were such big, bright tears compared to Diggory's own, that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. My son, my son, said Aslan, I know grief is great. God sees and God knows what you're struggling with. Even in the pain, you can rest assured that God has a plan for your life. I don't know what it's going to turn out like. I don't know what's around the corner. We're in Abu Dhabi. Everyone comes and goes, and that's very painful for all of us. Not to mention different kinds of struggles, but what I can assure you is that Jesus came, died on the cross, is alive and well today, and has a plan to use you to display his glory. It's a plan to use you to tell others of your forgiveness and use your pain for a purpose, for indeed there is. And God's plan is to liberate. In chapter 3, verse 18, we just read, it says that Moses is told, go tell the Pharaoh to let my people go from slavery so that my people can go and sacrifice to me. This is a very important thought here as we, as we finish up. What you see here is God's people were designed to serve. The problem is that they were serving a pagan god. They were serving Egyptian god, the Pharaoh. God wanted to free them from slavery so they would be free to now serve the one true God. We have indeed been made to worship. We will worship. The question isn't, will we worship, but what or whom will we worship? And my prayer is that every one of us 
here today as worshipers of Christ, for he is the Redeemer, the Liberator, and he wants to liberate you if you will turn to him, made possible because of the cross alone. Will you please join me as we pray? Father, this morning, as we examine your word, we are truly gripped by the truth, the beauty that you would send your son and that you would allow us to be part of something bigger than ourselves that points to you and to know you and to enjoy you forever, the privilege of belonging to you, being able to sacrifice to worship only you. I thank you, Father, for the book of Exodus and how it points to your gospel that your son accomplished for us. Father, I pray for anyone here in this room that is grappling with these truths, anyone here in this room that maybe does not know you, that they would repent and believe in your son, and those of us that are believers, that we would be compelled to worship you more authentically and be in your presence. And that would fuel us to go and tell others in our workplace, with our neighbors, and in every capacity. Make us a church, Father, that reflects your beauty and glory in Abu Dhabi and to the rest of the nations. Thank you. Thank you for using us despite ourselves. Thank you for knowing our pain. Thank you for giving us value. Thank you. We pray, Father, for your son's glory, for his kingdom to come, and in his name, amen.